Well, this is Brothers B Podcast. We discuss black LGBT issues and topics. And today we have a particular community series that we've actually done before at the World AIDS Museum uh, here in Wilton Manders, Florida, where we discuss the stigma of HIV with the transgender community. But I think what you will discover is that you actually get more from the stories that many of these transgender community activists actually experienced in their lives. And also some of the points that, some of the things that we never really considered when it comes to being transgender within the community, within the LGBT community, within society. Those are things that some of us really need to pay close attention to some of the things that they have to say. So please enjoy this conversation with the HIV stigma within the transgender community. But I would refer to more of this as the experience of the transgendered person. Thank you, everyone. So um, my name is Joseph, and um, I work with the S Institute. I do want to acknowledge um, uh, the Elton John Ace Foundation. They have provided a grant that allows us to have these dialogues and reach out and also address the topics of stigma and stigma reduction about all of the different communities that are impacted by um, HIV. And um, we have an amazing panel tonight, so we're going to jump right into that in just a second. But I just wanted to share with you a few statistics. When we look at the transgender community, and we also look at the relationship between how the community um, interacts with the transgender community at large, we find some of these numbers. In the trans community, we have a 33% suicide attempt rate. Um, driving up here, I was listening to NPR. They just had a program, so interesting that we're having this conversation tonight, about um, transgender and healthcare. And I see somebody that's wearing a nursing school uniform, yes. So we're also gonna talk about some, some of the medical discrimination that happens. Uh, this survey that NPR released shows that um, around 25% of transgender folks don't have permanent health care. Um, they, they can't have a steady plan, and if they're not getting prevention, then a whole host of medical uh, concerns can arise. The HIV infection rate in the trans community is um, three times the amount they are compared to other communities. So taking a look at some of those disparities, uh, we have this amazing panel here tonight who's going to each share from their personal experience and after each of them shares, really the floor will be open for you to ask any questions uh, that you would like so that we can um, learn about the intersecting uh, conversation of HIV stigma and transgender stigma and um, hopefully also come up with some solutions and ideas that we can bring this out further. And one of the ways that we're doing that here tonight um, is we have um, Brothers Speak podcast, which will be recording this session, and this will be going out and helping educate and enlighten and inform. So in no particular order, um, maybe uh, let's start with Tatiana, and you can just uh, say a little bit about yourself, and then we'll have each of the panelists introduce themselves. Okay, I'm going to introduce them. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Let me give you a background on me. I'm the Testing Expansion Coordinator for the um, Pride Center. I'm also the Community Co-Chair for Borough County HIV Prevention Planning Council. I'm also the 
integrate, integrated plan, and it's a plan that integrates care and prevention together. So we're charged with overseeing the activities and the initiatives implemented in the county to make sure that they're being done and done correctly. Also, I'm the co-founder of Trans Inclusive Group, which is a trans-led group that meets at the Price Center on Thursdays and on the last Thursday of each month, we do let all people involved come in. Um, for me, it's very important tonight with I'm um, speaking about transgender and HIV because I've had many friends to succumb to this disease. And this was a time when, because I started transitioning in the late 80s. So when they would be HIV positive, a lot of times they didn't get to the doctor until they were sick and they were diagnosed with AIDS. So it was important to me um, when I started to do the work. When I think about all of the risk factors that come when we're talking about trans women, um, and especially African-American trans women are at high risk. And it has not only something to do with them being transgender, but just the fact that they're African-American and people of color and disparities and the disadvantages. So we have to take that into account. And it, it, it really don't necessarily has anything to do with transgender. It has something to do with just the way of life and the way of living. When, when I think about community and I think about the work that needs to be done, I think that it's important that we as a community have to start to hold people accountable um, for the work that needs to be done in the community. I feel that the trans community is underserved. I feel that people are working for the T, but just using it and attaching it to the work that they do and don't put as much work in working for their population as they do other populations. I think we need everything as far as advertisement, as far as marketing, as far as all of the tools that it takes in order to reach that population. It's a lot of people apply for funding um, and get the funding just because it's the thing to do, but it's important that when you're applying for the funding that you have people that can do the work because if we continue to work at this rate, the rates will continue to go up. We wonder right why here in Dade and Broward County that the rates continue to go through the roof is simply because the people are applying for the funding and the funders are not holding them accountable for doing the work. So it's important that we as a community, if we're here to support that community, that we stand behind that community and help them. And I'll dive deeper in more conversation about it, but I want to let the other panelists introduce themselves and then we can move along. Good evening, everyone. I'm Rashi Naransing, trans activist, author, and actress. And uh, I, I wanted to be a part of this because it is really important and dear to my heart. Uh, I was about the age of four when I started to realize something was different about me. In those days, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am because you never ask a lady how old she is. <laughs> but, you know, there wasn't Google. You couldn't just go on line and Google, well, what does it mean when you're a boy and you feel like a girl, you know? So it was a lot of trial and error trying to figure out. Um, but I knew the names that I w was being called like faggot and sissy and punk and homo. They didn't make me feel good. I didn't like the energy behind them, even though I didn't know what they meant. And um, I could see my little four-year-old self now looking up at my neighbor and saying, what does faggot mean? And he looked at me and he was like, why are you asking me that question? I'm like, well, that's what everyone's calling me. And based on his answer, I knew that faggot couldn't be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Because he was like, well, you don't pay attention to them. Don't worry about it. You just ignore what they're saying. Got into school. The bullying was relentless. I mean, when you're 
a male, born male into the world, there's a certain standard that you have to live up to. Um, I think a lot of times, and I use this example, if you see two little girls walking down the street holding hands, people don't bat an eye. If you see two little boys doing it, it's like, wait a minute. You know, right away people are on like high alert, like, oh, we got to watch that, you know. So, the, the, so, you know, dealing with all of the expectations that I couldn't live up to because I just wasn't male enough or masculine enough. And so anyway, in my 20s is when I started to realize that maybe I might be trans. I started to connect the dots. And um, I, I thought of things like, wow, like, I took my basketball that dad got me, and I used to be in my room pretending I was pregnant. You know, I'd be walking around and with my belly, and I'd have the baby and be real motherly taking care of my baby. And then G.I. Joe, he was never going to war. He was always coming home to me, and I was his wife. So, you know, a kid's imagination, right? If my dad only knew what I was doing, you know, with these, with these uh, toys... And so I connected the dots and, I, and even like as, as I got into my teens and I started to fantasize, I realized in my 20s, I realized in retrospect, wow, I always imagined myself with breasts and a vagina and I didn't even realize I was doing it. And so it was like just second nature and I would just automatically do it. All right. So, you know, if I thought life was hard before I declared myself as trans... Boy, was I in for a rude awakening. It got harder. And um, it was, you know, from just dealing with maneuvering in society to, unfortunately, being brutally beaten up by some guys uh, one night who targeted me because I was trans. And my life flashed before my eyes. I mean, literally, I thought I was going to die that night. So... You know, our community, we deal with so many different things on so many different levels with housing and health care and employment discrimination and just, like I said, maneuvering through society. Some of you all may recognize me. Um, the story of my black market injections went worldwide, like global, um, viral, that's the word. And... Um, hmm. I've been on about 30 different TV shows sharing my story, but thankfully I was able to get a little corrective surgery. I had a horrible reaction from the black market injections in my face. And so now I was walking around with a very distorted face. So here I am, transgender, a trans woman, trying to maneuver in society, and I have to go out and my face is really distorted. So, you know, and we all know that the world is very visual. And so, you know, it's one thing if you're trans, and not saying that if you're trans and beautiful, you don't have a hard time. But I'm just saying, like, try being trans with a disfigured face, and then it just compounds things. Like, you know, and the attitude is, well, you did it to yourself. Mm -hmm. But people don't stop to think that it's perpetuated by society because we didn't have the resources, a lot of us, to do our transition the right way. So we're rubbing two nickels together trying to live in our truth. You know, not many of us have the millions of dollars to go and, oh, I want to be a woman, let me go and have my surgery and do that and pay for, you know, most of us, that's not the trans experience, mm -hmm. you know, for most of us. So... AIDS and HIV 
is very dear to my heart because um, I was affected early on in the 80s and I was looking around as we were sitting here before the program started and I'm looking at 1987, 1988. Those were the horror days. That's what I call them. They were dropping like flies. I lost a very dear friend of mine. He was a beautiful dancer, Ronald Allen, and a gay man. He got a scholarship to go to New York for dance, and he was off for, to college. And that spring, I, he came home early. I saw him on the train. This is in Philadelphia. So we were on the subway, and I saw him. I'm like, what are you doing home? Uh, you don't, you're not supposed to come home until May. So he's like, oh, I'm not feeling good. I had to drop out for the semester I came home. Well, that was in March. By January 1st, Ronald Allen was dead. He was gone. So, I mean, you, you, you know, the, the, the deterioration and, you know, just, you know, from being diagnosed to death was just like so quick. And I'll never forget him because our lives were just starting. We were both 21. And I've lived so many more years and I've done so many more things with my life and I can't even imagine if Ronald was here and able to have more years, the things that he would have done with his life. So I, I sit here tonight because, you know, HIV and AIDS, things have gotten better. People are able to live if they follow their regimen and take their medications. But the fight and the struggle is not over. And for the trans community, many of uh, transgender women, especially transgender women of color, we're dealing with so many different issues that healthcare, when you're worried about where you're sleeping and where your next meal is coming from, you can't even really think about next week, next month, next year, because you're, it's survival from day to day. It's kind of like that pyramid, you know, the pyramid and like, you know, as, as your needs get met and you have your basic human needs, then you can start to set goals and have aspirations and that sort of thing. And, and so um, it's very dear to my heart. I've been an activist in this community for almost 20 years now, pounding the pavement. And let me tell you, only in the last few years have I seen some acceleration with our movement, with our transgender equality movement. Only in the last few years, and thank God I lived to see it, there were days when I thought I wouldn't, I'd never see it. So, you know, I continue to do the work. I, um, our community lost a dear, uh, I call him a trailblazer, Bishop S.F. Makalani Mehi, transgender man, who was so passionate about his activism and his um, advocacy for the transgender equality movement. The work that he did will live on for eternity. It's like a pebble that you throw in the pond and you see the ripple effects. But I sit here tonight in honor of him because he's gone now. He passed away last night and he will be missed, but we have to continue the work. <clears throat> Um, hi everyone, my name is Dylan, um, and I just want to start off saying I'm so honored to sit on a panel with such trailblazing women in, in the field of HIV and transgender work. So I work at Compass as the HIV Prevention Program Coordinator, Young Adult Program Coordinator, Smart Ride Agency Rep, Youth 100 Team Liaison, pretty much you name it, I do it over at Compass. 
And something that I've really been working on a lot lately, the, um, the issue of youth homelessness in Palm Beach County, especially like down here in like South Florida. So if you look at youth homelessness as a whole, 40% of all youth homeless individuals identify as LGBTQ. And it really comes down to like looking at the disparities that are going against like not only the trans community, but also people getting kicked out in the beginning. So um, a lot of things that we've been working on is something called diversion. So working with the families, um, like I'll go around with Michael and she'll introduce herself in a second. Um, and we'll do LGBT cultural competencies for families, for foster families to help try to end youth homelessness in the LGBT community. Uh, my name is Michael Reardon. I also work at Compass. I'm going to say this just for the benefit of the uh, podcast and anybody in the audience who might be still confused. I am a transgender woman, despite my name and how I sound. Um, the second transgender employee hired at Compass. Do you all know what Compass is? Are you familiar? So Compass is the LGBT community center up in Lake Worth, and we serve as Palm Beach County um, predominantly. Anybody from anywhere can come. Um, but we have a myriad of services and departments, um, obviously Dylan and the HIV prevention department. We have a youth program. Um, the trans youth program just got a grant to expand uh, to weekly meetings, um, which is a huge deal for them and for us. Um, we also have a very large health services department. We're the only direct service provider um, in the county. Uh, specifically catering to the LGBT community. Um, I myself work in the, the business development department. Um, and as I was listening to the other introductions, I started thinking, you know, like, oh man, you know, I, don't, I don't have that kind of pedigree. I don't have that kind of history. Um, personally, I came out a year and a half ago. Um, I came from, uh, we joke all the time, but I'm, I was a, you know, I'm a white, straight guy um, that is trans and I um, you know I started figuring it out later in life and when I finally decided to, to come out to friends and family but I always say you have to come out twice um, once to friends and family but the first time to yourself and when I realized that it was time for me to do that um, I immediately went from uh, being largely in the majority to being in a minority. Um, and so working at Compass for me is very important, not only because it allows me to be who I am, and I'm one of the lucky people. And Tatiana, you were talking about, um, I mean, everybody so far has mentioned that to some extent, I believe, you know, the socioeconomic um, situation that many trans people find themselves in. You know, you say, and I heard we were saying, you know, we all don't have millions of dollars to go out and you know overnight transform ourselves. It's a struggle for many people. Um, and I think about all of the things that come with that. Um, so I, I consider myself blessed to be working at Compass. Um, and in the particular department I work in, I have the fortune of working with every other department in Compass. So I see the work that they're doing. I get to, to hear their stories. I get to see what they're doing and, and, and learn. And I'll be honest with you, it's quite the education uh, for me coming, especially from my background and the life that I was living um, to being, <clears throat> I wouldn't say thrust because I've, I've chosen this and I'm, I'm happy and I'm glad that I am in this community. Um, 
but I do, I see all of a sudden things that I didn't think about, things that I didn't know about. I was heavily closeted. Um, I always joke that I, you know, I, I really passed well as a straight guy, you know. Um, when I was playing with G.I. Joe, he was going to war, you know. <laughs> if I was playing with the basketball, it was, you know, I was bouncing it. Um, I, don't, I don't want babies. But anyway, so, um, so it's, um, it's been interesting for me to see um, that there still is such a huge problem out there. And I think that part of what leads to situation, the situations that we find ourselves in, which is the numbers are, are rising again, especially in the South. And I, I think that a lot of people out there think it's over. You know, I think that a lot of people believe or just aren't paying attention anymore. And to see the work that still needs to be done, the work that is being done, um, it's, it's very important and, and I do I come from a, a group of people in a, in a place where that education isn't happening like I believe that it should anymore um, but I'm starting to ramble so we'll get to questions and stuff and, uh, but I'm Michael thank you <laughs> thank you everyone so um, let's maybe come back to Tatiana because I know you wanted to say a few more things about, um, and this is a nice segue from what Michael was just talking about. So what are some of the service gaps that are still um, not being met for the transgender community? From your perspective, what work still needs to be done? Where is the most need? So that all of us can really understand that so we can start to address that. In my perspective, I feel that, first of all, we need to identify that there's a need in the transgender community. I think government is still lumping the transgender community in with the men sleeping with men population. And for some odd reason, they're not thinking that that population, even if you don't have specific funding for that population, you should somehow, some way take funding from the MSM population if they are a part of that population and start to allocate money there to put research, resources in community. That's the first thing we need to do. I think when you think about prevention for trans people, we have to think about all components. You just can't think about give them a condom or tell them about PrEP. You have to think about everything. As mentioned earlier, you have to think about housing. You have to think about education. You have to think about everything when it comes to this population. And some of these women are so busy trying to survive they don't have time to even get the education or know about things that are in community like this evening. What's, what's important to me, what I always say in working in a CBO, you have to put just as much work in all populations and all of community. You can't put a whole lot of work over here and get a good success rate from that and want to give a piece to this community and expect to get the same. We have to not only work for equality, but equity as well when it comes to the population. I think government plays a major part in this when it comes to the gaps. I think opposed to just sending money and funding people and allocating, and you're looking good on paper saying you can do X, Y, Z, and you know as an organization that you can't do it, and you just can make yourself look like you can, and then once you get the funding, then you're like, well, let me figure out how this works. 
No, you should have already had that in place before you even thought to even apply for that money because that's what's important. The community will continuously get underserved if we move at that rate. So I think we have to be strategic. And I think in community, um, a lot of the organizations and people in community would just pull someone in that's transgender to fit the check mark or to say, oh, I'm doing it. Oh, I got it. I got me a transgender in. But if that trans person is not able to reach the community, what's the purpose? So if you're just putting someone there just to get a check mark and you don't know the work, that's where we have a problem. So if you see people, they see people out there that can do the work and opposed to pulling these people in and saying, let me help you. Let me get behind you to do the work. They will continuously apply for the funding and not use it the right way. And that's a part of the problem. I feel that we have to start holding people accountable. And I think when it comes to the trans population, I think it's important for them to fight as well for their rights because you only can do what you can do yourself, but you have to have that manpower and you have to have people to back you. And the allies, when you have that privilege, when you have that voice, you have to work for us. And sometimes I'm not even sure, sometimes I wonder, are they really trying to make a change? Are they really trying to make a difference? Because I look at it like this. If I work in a CBO, and you don't have many trans-led organizations as well. If I work in a CBO, and most of them are ran by um, white gay males in LGBT um, organizations, and I think about myself, why would I give you the tools to lead you to apply for funding and help you, and that's going to take away from me? So I think it, there's a lot of things coming to play, and I think we um, there's a lot of smoke screens, and nobody is putting all the cards on the table and being honest. And in order for us to tackle HIV, we have to be honest. We can't continue to work with the smoke screens and just do, you know, I'm getting a check mark, and no disrespect to anyone in the room. And I and I speak on the the black population because that's where the HIV is is high and it continues to raise. Um, when they started to blanket that umbrella term, people of color, that's when we lost the mark when it comes to that black population. Because when you said it, and, and, and excuse me, because I'm speaking from a, a grant standpoint and from a deliverable standpoint, so I understand it. When we did that, we lost the fight for that community because agencies and government were able to say, okay, I met the deliverable because I did meet this many people of color, but the many people of color could have been a whole lot of people. So that that African-American population is being left behind. So we have to start to pay attention and we have to hold community accountable for the work that they're supposed to be doing for the transgender community. Ms. Well, you know, I had mentioned earlier in my introduction that um, I, when I started to transition, I, I did the hormones. You know, I started dressing, grew my hair out, makeup, wearing feminine clothes, but it wasn't enough. Like, it only did so much, and then I was like, God, I'm not getting what I really want. Like, I'm not really matching my spirit, the way I feel inside with the way I look on the outside. And I was seeing all these beautiful trans women, and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you know, how do you get that shape? And like, you know, and that's when the pumping is what, like one of the terms in the community um, that we use uh, came in. So I was like, well, you know, it's, it's affordable. I can, I can afford that. And, you know, yes, it's black market, 
And it's things like that that really expose you to, can expose you, not, not everyone. You know, for some people I have to say, and I'm just gonna be honest, they get um, black market injections and they're fine. It, like it's their best friend. For some people, it's their worst nightmare because girls have actually died from it. So, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, you're rolling the dice. For me, it was a little bit of both. I mean, my face got very distorted and disfigured, but, you know, I got, I got the breast. Well, these are a little too big now. I didn't plan on going this big. They just keep getting bigger. But, but what I'm saying, so... So, but no, so what I'm saying is I'm using that as an example to say that, you know, because we don't have the resources, we put a lot of times we roll the dice and we end up in situations where you can expose yourself to HIV. Because, you know, let's not forget to get pumped, you have to use needles. And you don't know if those needles that they're using are sterile, you know, necessarily. So that's one way of exposing yourself. And um, I, you know, I always say you can sit and complain and cry about the situation. And I had those moments. But then I was like, you know what? This happened to me. I can take this thing and use it as a tool of advocacy to educate the community so that um, other girls won't go down this road. Because let me tell you, it's prevalent in our community. And not only transgender, I, since I was on Botched and on the E-Network and I hear from people all around the world on a daily basis, I get messages. And I hear from regular biological heterosexual women who have considered doing this very same thing. So, you know, it's, it, and, you know, the world is, like I said in my introduction, it's all about the way you look and, you know, the pressure to be beautiful. And every culture has that definition of beautiful. It's not the same for every culture, but there is a definition or a standard of beauty that people feel forced to live up to. So that's an example of, to me, how many of us get ourselves in a situation. Another thing would be um, the medical the medical health, uh, the, the medical treatment that we go for. When you feel stigmatized, and I'm gonna tell you, from young, there's a shame that many LGBT people live with. It is it's in it's ingrained. Not all, but many. Because when you're told by your family what you are is wrong, when you're told by your community what you are is wrong, when you're told by your, the kids in school what you are is wrong, you start to feel like, oh my God, I'm wrong. What I feel and who I am is not the way it's supposed to be. And what comes from that is shame. And when you're ashamed, you want to hide. And so therefore, a lot, I'll speak for myself, there were times I was scared to go to a doctor because I didn't know how they were going to treat me. Thankfully now, I have a wonderful doctor and I get the care that I need. But for many years, I didn't go because there was a particular time when I went to, into an office and you know, like you walk into the office and they open the, um, they slide the window open. So the nurse like 
she kind of did one of these numbers and I said, hi, I'm here, you know, for my appointment. And she said, okay, well, have a seat. She gave me the thing to fill out. Closes the thing and they all start cracking up laughing. Like I can't hear that. Now, take that experience that you, any one of you in here, you're sick or you have a situation, you're going to the doctors, you're, you you want to be welcomed, you know, you don't have to kiss my butt, but at least make me feel welcomed in your office. And I'm now sitting in the, the, the waiting room hearing these nurses laughing at, laughing about me. What confidence will I have in the health care that I'm going to get at that office? And will I even want to go back? So again, you know, when you're stigmatized, you, you're, you're living on the fringes of society, and you don't go for the, you know, out and about and go to your doctor's appointments or, you know, and, and that sort of thing, and take care of yourself. And so that's another area that we really need to work on, encouraging. And like I said, it's getting better. I mean, in my introduction, I mean, really, I said like the last few years, things have gotten better for our community. But we still have a long way to go. And let's not forget, Stonewall was started by a black transsexual woman of color. And the transgender community got forgotten for many years and pushed aside. So, you know, because it was about gay rights and lesbian rights and, and you know, and that whole thing. And then it was almost like once, once, once the gays and the lesbians got their rights, they're like, oh, you trans folks are a little too out there. We don't know if we can tag you all, bring you all along for this because people are finally giving us our rights. So... Again, I'm saying all of that to say, not to make anyone feel any, any um, uncomfortable, but it's the reality of how things played out in history. And because we were the T, the, the, the forgotten ones pushed aside and living on the fringes, a lot of things lacked for our community. So, let me stop running my mouth. <laughs> You can keep going, it's fine. <laughs> I wanted to also just throw in a statistic here. Um, in a, a study was done in workplaces of transgender people that were still employed, okay? 90% uh, of them on a workplace survey said that they had been let go by previous jobs just because they were transgender. 90% oh. employment discrimination rate. Just a thank you, because you just, I have, I have to share this. Okay, so I worked in corporate America for 28 years, okay, and I worked as, for many of those years as a trans person. Well, it was hell. I mean, it's hard enough going to a job every day, just being, you know, a, a quote-unquote regular person, going to showing up and giving it your all and then, you know, that sort of thing. Well, there was a particular company that I worked for and I would sit in my car with my stomach in knots because I didn't want to go inside. The treatment that I got was just horrific. It's like, you know, you go to work, it's supposed to be a team effort and you're with your coworkers and it was very much not that. I would say probably 70% of the workforce didn't want me there. And um, when I started, I went in and I applied as trans. I, you know, filled out my application. I took my tests. I passed. 
they tell me, okay, we're going to call you in a week for uh, your training, to set up your training, you know, for, the, for your job. So a week goes by, no call. Two weeks go by, no call. So a friend of mine says to me, you know, you should probably go back up there. You passed the test and you filled out, yeah. So I got myself all dialed up and I walked in and you could see the receptionist when I walked in. Yes, like, you know, oh, you. And I said, well, you know, I came two weeks ago. I filled out the application. I passed my test and I was told that someone was going to call me to set up some sort of training. Well, hold on a minute. Hold on. Have a seat. So they get me an interview with uh, one of the uh, human resources managers. I walk into his office and I sit down and the first thing he says to me is, damn, are those tits real? So now me, because I need a job and I, you know, I kind of laugh it off. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> it took a little work to get them, but they're real, you know? And so he's like, mm, you know, and he says, well, I heard you girls give really good blowjobs. Okay, now this is my interview. So I said, so, and again, I, I, my, my mind is on the job. I'm not going to walk out and like storm out. How dare you? Because I need a job, you know? So, um, so I said, well, um, you know, people have said that about us before, you know? So I, so then I, I went back to, I said, well, what about my job? Like, am I hired? He says, um, I said, well, you know, I'm trans. I hope that won't be a problem. Oh no, this is an equal opportunity company. It's not a problem. You start next Monday, show up for training. I go, I show up, first day everything went, went lovely. I went home and I said, yes, you know, it looks like it's gonna be fine. Next day, I'm sitting in class and one of the, my teacher, he, he pulls me out of the class and he says, I just wanna warn you, they wanna see you in human resources. I told him, you're very natural with the way you carry yourself and, you know, you, you, your first day was fine. He says, but I just want to give you a warning there. They want to see you, and I don't think it's good. So I walk in, human resource manager. He says, well, I don't know what we're going to do with you. He says, on your computer application, you put miss. On your written application, you put um, transgender. And on your... ID, it's male. You have male. So I said, well, on the computer, there was no category for trans, and I certainly wasn't going to put Mr. Um, on the ID situation, at that time in the state of Florida, you couldn't change your gender marker. So I said, I can't, I can't change that. I said, but you see I'm being forthcoming about who I am because I wrote transgender, you know. So he's like, well, I don't know if this is going to work out with you. And we have had complaints about you using the bathroom. You can't use the woman's bathroom because you're a threat to the females at this job. And you certainly can't use the, males, the, the male restroom. So I don't know. And he says, and I know you know other transgender people. Don't refer them to this company. Honey, I wish I had that on recording. I wish I had that recorded because I probably would be in the French Riviera right now. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that is literally a lawsuit. Even if you're thinking that, you don't say that. But that was my welcome to this company. I'm going to close with this. 
there were days. Now, this building was like bigger than a football field. I worked on one end, and the bathroom that I was assigned to was all the way on the other end. It was one of those unisex bathrooms where you walked in, but it was located in the human resource department, which closed at four o'clock. My shift was from 12 to eight. So for four hours, I didn't have a bathroom to use. And then on top of it, when I did use the bathroom, my supervisor was docking me because I was taking longer than my other coworkers who could just walk across the hall to the restroom. But I, you know, it took me longer because I had to walk all the way across the building, do what I do, and then come back. And so, of course, it would take me longer, but I was getting in trouble. So it was like, you see that kind of shifty type stuff going on where they hire you, but it's almost like they want to make you quit. Um, I sat at my desk many days, eight hours, and didn't go to the bathroom for many days. And I don't know if any of you all saw that movie, Hidden Figures. Remember the scene where the woman was at NASA and she had to run across, all the way across campus every day to use the bathroom? Well, that was me, okay? That was me for a long time. But I stuck it out, I proved myself, and there was something in me that said, you know what, I gotta show these people that a transgender person can come to work, show up, give 100% and do the job just like anyone else. And I was there for seven years. I stuck it out and I, it got better as time went on because I proved myself and I did get like about 10% that started to rally in my corner, um, but it wasn't easy. So that's to give you a little example of the employment thing. You might get hired, but then they make it like hell for you to, to maneuver and work. Like, you know, so it's like, it's almost like, it's almost like well, you know, you, you hired me, but then you're giving me all of this strife and struggle to just come and do my job. What an amazing story. Tune in next week as we continue part two of the conversation, the stigma of HIV within the transgender community. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I will see you next week with part two. Have a wonderful day.